Okay, welcome back to Healthspan. I finished off part one discussing the differences between NREM and REM. And I also posed the question, are we the only creatures that experience these varied stages of sleep? And do any other animals have REM sleep? Without exception, every animal species studied to date sleeps or engages in something remarkably like it. All species have bona fide sleep. Regress evolutionarily time still further and we have discovered that the very simplest form of unicellular organisms that survive for periods exceeding 24 hours, like bacteria, have active and passive phases that correspond to the light-dark cycles of our planet. It is a pattern that we now believe to be the precursor of our own circadian rhythm, and with it, wake and sleep. Many of the explanations why we sleep circle around a common and perhaps erroneous idea. Sleep is the state we must enter in order to fix that which has been upset by wake. But what if this turn, if we kind of turn this argument on its head? What if sleep is so useful, so physiologically beneficial to every aspect of our being that the real question is, why did life ever bother to wake us up? Adopt this perspective and we can pose a very different theory. Sleep was the first state of life on this planet. And it was from sleep that wakefulness emerged. Now, this is not entirely unreasonable. This is the stance that Matthew Walker takes. He's saying that perhaps we were all sleeping and this was our first state of, of consciousness was just sleep. And then we were kind of awoken from this sleep. And that's kind of like when life so-called emerged. Now, sleep, again, long-lasting commonality. However, there are truly remarkable differences in sleep from one species to another. So the first thing I'm going to discuss is the four major differences in sleep across species. So the first thing is the total amount of time we sleep. Let's say elephants, for example, need half as much sleep as humans, requiring only about four hours of slumber each day. Tigers and lions devour 15 hours of daily sleep. The brown bat outperforms all other mammals, being awake for just five hours each day while sleeping. Uh, 19 hours. So what does explain the differences in sleep and from, you know, from species to species or even within a genetically similar order? Why is it that some species sleep way more than others? You know, we often have these questions like, why, why is my cat always sleeping all day? Or why do these other animals barely sleep at all? Well, the true answer is that we don't exactly know. We aren't entirely sure. But the relationship between the size of the nervous system, the complexity of the nervous system, and total body mass appears to be somewhat meaningful predictor, with increasing brain complexity relative to body size resulting in greater sleep amounts. He also kind of goes on to explain that it's really this complex hybrid of factors, such as dietary type, predator slash prey balance within a habitat, the presence and nature of social network, metabolic rate, and again, this nervous system complexity. So it's not just this one thing that determines why some species sleep uh, longer than others. It's really this kind of relationship of the nervous system and also like our diet, our, our environment, uh, our metabolic rates. This is why some species sleep uh, longer than others. To Dr. Walker, this speaks to the fact that sleep has likely been shaped by numerous forces along the evolutionary path and involves a delicate balancing act between meeting the demands of waking survival, for example, like hunting, 
prey or obtaining food in as short as time possible um, versus restoring this sort of like physiologic need of the organism when we are sleeping. So there's this really delicate balance and evolution has really shaped this time period, at least for humans to be, okay, maybe it's this eight to nine hours that we need this restorative sleep and the rest of the time we can stay awake. So that's the first big difference across the species is time. Now, the second biggest difference is the composition of our sleep. Not all species experience all stages of sleep. Every species in which we can measure sleep stages experience NREM sleep. Again, this is the non-dreaming stage. However, insects, amphibians, fish, and most reptiles show no clear signs of REM sleep, the type of uh, sleep associated with dreaming in humans. Only birds and mammals, which appeared later in the evolutionary timeline on the animal kingdom, have full-blown REM sleep. So again, this is the difference. Not all animals have full NREM REM. Uh, some species, again, don't have REM, meaning they you know, potentially uh, aren't really dreaming. Um, there are some anomalies, um, but setting aside the issue of whether all mammals have REM sleep, an uncontested fact is this. NREM sleep was first to appear in evolution. It is the original form that sleep took when stepping out from behind evolution's kind of creative curtain. And he also poses another question, which type of sleep, NREM or REM sleep, is more important? Which do we really need? So perhaps the simplest recipe to understand the difference of which one do we need more is to really take an organism that has both sleep types, NREM and REM, bird or mammal, and keep it awake all night and throughout the subsequent day. NREM and REM sleep are thus similarly removed, creating this condition of equivalent hunger for each sleep state. So he's basically taking an animal, he's taking, he's depriving it of sleep, and he's going to find out, okay, on subsequent days, is this animal going to have more NREM sleep or, or REM sleep, and which is more important? Well, NREM sleep seems to rebound harder. So the brain will consume a far larger portion of deep NREM sleep than of REM sleep on the first night after total sleep deprivation, expressing this lopsided hunger. So in the battle of importance, NREM sleep therefore wins. Or does it? Not quite. So should you keep recording sleep across the second, third, and every fourth recovery night, there is this reversal. Now REM sleep becomes the primary kind of dish of choice with each returning visit to the recovery buffet table with a side of NREM sleep. So we try to recover one NREM sleep a little sooner than the other REM sleep, but make no mistake, the brain will attempt to recoup both. So the real answer is both are important, both will be recovered, um, but just remember that NREM sleep tends to recover first compared to REM sleep. So again, that's the second biggest difference across species is the differences between, um, you know, the composition of our sleep. Now, the third difference in sleep across species is the way we sleep. So take dolphins and whales, for example, their sleep, of which there is only NREM, can be unihemispheric, meaning they will sleep half a, with half a brain at a time. So one half of their brain must always stay awake to maintain life necessary movements in this kind of a aquatic environment. But the other half of the brain will at times fall 
in the most beautiful NREM sleep. And birds can do this as well. And two recently published reports suggest humans have a very mild version of this unihemispheric sleep where really only half our brain is asleep. But if you bring that person into a sleep lab or take them to a hotel, both of, both of which can be kind of uh, unfamiliar environments, one half of their brain sleeps a little lighter than the other, as if it's standing guard with just a kind of like a vigilance to potentially like, um, you know, less, less safe context uh, than the conscious brain has uh, registered while it's awake. Um, so that's something interesting to know. Now, the fourth and final difference between sleep across species is the sleep pattern. The infrequent situation happens only in response to extreme environmental pressures or challenges. Starvation, for example, is, is, a, is one situation. Or place an organism under conditions of severe famine and foraging for food will supersede sleep. So again, this sleep pattern is really going to be deferring um, under certain situations. Uh, to move forward, I'm going to be skipping a little bit and talk about a really interesting topic, and it's sleep before birth. Now, we all know someone who's been pregnant, um, and often they're going to say, oh, my baby's kicking. I can feel my baby kicking and punching my stomach. So this baby kind of elicits these small kicks and movement from their, uh, you know, inside the uterus. And though you should never tell them this, meaning the mother, the baby is most likely fast asleep. Prior to birth, a human infant will spend almost all of its time in sleep-like state, much of which resembles the REM sleep state. Any kind of like arm flickering or leg bop that the mother feels from her baby are most likely to be the consequence of random bursts of brain activity that typify REM sleep. But in utero, the immature fetus's brain has yet to construct the REM sleep muscle inhibiting system adults have in place. Other deep centers of the fetus brain have, however, already been glued in place, including those that generate sleep. As a result of this mismatch, the fetus brain still generates these formidable motor commands during REM sleep, except there is no paralysis to really hold them back. And without restraint, those commands are freely translated into kind of these frantic like body movements um, felt by the mother as if like they were getting kicked or punched in the stomach but really the baby is not awake it's really ha it's having these kind of like spasms um like arm flicks and leg bops because of this uh inhibition normally as he okay as humans we have uh you know sleep when we're in REM sleep we have these inhibitions that prevent us from like getting up and you know doing something dangerous but babies don't have that so while they're in REM sleep they're kind of like just kicking and, you know, punching, and that's what the mother is feeling. And even though the total sleep time decreases in the last trimester, a paradoxical and quite ballistic increase in REM sleep time occurs. So in the last two weeks of pregnancy, the fetus will ramp up its consumption of REM sleep to almost nine hours a day. Detailed creations of the brain and its component parts occur at a rapid pace during the second and third trimester of human development, precisely the same time window when REM sleep really skyrockets. So dazzling bursts of electrical activity during REM sleep stimulate the lush growth of neural pathways along, you know, um, 
all over the developing brain. And we call this synaptogenesis, the sort of creation of, of new, new neural pathways, more synapse uh, connections. This is uh, when that's occurring. In the 1990s, researchers began studying newly born rat pups. So simply by blocking the REM sleep in these rats, their gestational process was slowed down despite chronological time marching on. And depriving these infant rats of REM sleep stalled construction of their cerebral cortex in their brain. So we're seeing just how important REM sleep is even before birth. And a more recent link with deficient REM sleep concerns autism spectrum disorder, ASD. So now I'm going to be discussing how sleep potentially has this correlation with autism. So our current understanding of what causes autism is really incomplete, but central to the condition appears to be this inappropriate wiring up of the brain during early developmental life. So autism is a developmental disorder. We don't really know what causes it. Some people say it's the gut. Some people say... Um, you know, Matthew Walker saying this potentially a problem with sleep and sleep wiring. And specifically, the problem is with these formations of of um, the synapses, there's abnormal synaptogenesis. So I just talked about how during REM sleep, we have this huge amount of synaptogenesis. And realizing this, scientists have begun to examine whether the sleep of individuals with autism is atypical. And in fact, it is. Infants and young children who show signs of autism or who are diagnosed with autism do not have normal sleep patterns or amounts. The circadian rhythms of autistic children are also weaker than their non-autistic counterparts, showing a flatter profile of melatonin across the 24-hour period rather than this powerful rise in concentration at night and this kind of rapid fall during the day. So it's really these abnormal sleep patterns that we're seeing in autistic children. Additionally, and perhaps related, the total amount of sleep that autistic children can generate is less than that of a non-autistic children. Uh, so that's super fascinating. And most notably, however, is the significant shortage of REM sleep. Again, REM sleep is the synaptogenesis period. Autistic individuals show a 30 to 50 percent uh, deficit in the amount of REM sleep they obtain relative to children without autism. Um, so just take that into note, uh, potentially this link between REM sleep, synaptogenesis, and the development of uh, autism spectrum disorder. I'm going to move on to the next topic, which is childhood sleep. Um, many new parents, they understand that their child, their you know two-year-old, one-year-old, has this polyphasic profile of infant sleep. And the reason is because as we're developing, we don't really have our total like suprachiasmatic nucleus to develop properly. So our hypothalamus, which has a nuclei called the suprachiasmatic nucleus, is not properly developed. It can't communicate with the pineal gland to secrete melatonin. And not until the age of three or four months will a newborn show modest signs of this kind of daily rhythm. And slowly, this kind of uh, suprachiasmatic nucleus begins to latch on to this repeated signals of like daytime, temperature change, and feedings. And it's after all those environmental exposures that we're finally able to establish this 24-hour uh, circadian rhythm. Uh, so that's why these babies are not uh, sleeping like adults. They're not 
they're not waking up when they should, they're not going to sleep when they should, is because their suprachiasmatic nucleus is not fully developed at that time. And it takes some time for the nucleus to develop and kind of get exposure to these signals like temperature, feedings, daylight, nighttime, etc. I'm going to sleep the skip the skip the section on sleep in adolescence and I just wanted to talk about the sleep in midlife as well as um old age and why it decreases uh so substantially. So give me a second I'm going to move forward to sleep in midlife and old age. So there's three key changes that occur during old age when it comes to sleep. Reduced quantity and quality, reduced sleep efficiency, and disrupted timing of sleep. As you enter your fourth decade of life, there is a palpable reduction in the electrical quantity and quality of that deep NREM sleep. You obtain fewer hours of deep sleep, and those deep NREM uh, NREM brainwaves become smaller, less powerful, and fewer in number. Uh, Let's see. So what is it exactly about this aging process that so thoroughly robs the brain of this essential state of slumber? Dr. Walker wondered whether the cause of this sleep decline was to be found in this intricate pattern of structural brain deterioration that occur as we age. So the process of atrophy. We all know as we get older, our body begins to atrophy, meaning kind of waste away. It happens to our muscles. It happens to you know our skin. And of course, it's happening to our brain. After performing hundreds of brain scans and amassing almost a thousand hours of overnight sleep recordings, we discovered a clear answer unfolding in a three-part story. So first, the areas of the brain that suffer the most dramatic deterioration with aging are unfortunately the very same deep sleep generating regions, which is the middle frontal region seated above the bridge of the nose. Secondly, And unsurprisingly, older adults suffered a 70% loss of deep sleep compared with matched younger individuals. Third and most critical, we discovered that these changes were not independent, but instead significantly connected with one another. The more severe deterioration that an older adult suffers within this specific mid-frontal region of the brain I was talking about, the more dramatic their loss of deep NREM sleep. So we get this atrophy in the brain, this specific region of the brain that helps us sleep, and it's showing a decrease in the amount of NREM sleep. So th- that's really why, um, you know, during the aging process that we're having such a hard time. We have this sleep uh, problem epidemic going on, and we know it's a problem as we get older. Um, a lot of these older patients are just suffering from insomnia, and it's really due to this atrophy of, of the brain. Um, and again, the area of the brain that's suffering the most is this midfrontal region, which is helping us with the NREM sleep production. So that's the end of part one. And in part two, which I will be recording soon, hopefully, I'll be discussing how sleep actually affects our learning and memory, sleep, de- sleep deprivation and how it affects the brain, sleep and its correlation with Alzheimer's, and I'll be finishing off with sleep and its association with cancer, um, heart, heart attacks, as well as uh, a shorter life. So I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, make sure to please leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I hope you learned something.
and I hope you tune in next time for part two of Why We Sleep by Dr. Matthew Walker. Thanks for listening.